Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We wish everybody in the region peace, but anyone who wishes us a war, we give it to them. We have professionals trained for it. Rwanda is small in size. Our doctrine is to fight war on enemy territory when it calls for it. Hello, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. For several months now, Ugandan troops have been fighting an ISIS-aligned rebel group, the ADF, or Allied Democratic Forces, in the jungles in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. It's not just Uganda. Burundi's also deployed forces into the DRC to fight Burundian rebels. And we just heard Rwandan President Paul Kagame threaten to send Rwandan troops across the border too. Today we're going to talk about Great Lakes politics, the many rebel groups operating in the eastern DRC, what Ugandan and Burundian troops are doing, and what would happen were Kagame to send Rwandan forces in. Uganda and Democratic Republic of Congo are joining forces to fight one of the most lethal armed groups in Congo. Ugandan soldiers have crossed into the DRC to take on the Allied Democratic Forces, also known as the ADF. Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi came to power in 2019, pledging to stabilize the eastern DRC and take on or demobilize the dozens of armed groups operating there. He also launched a regional diplomatic initiative, trying to win the support of the DRC's neighbors, especially Uganda and Rwanda, that have long meddled in the country's east. Then, last December, he invited Uganda to send its troops to fight the ADF, in principle together with the Congolese army. At the same time, a Congolese rebel group, the M23, which in the past has enjoyed Ugandan and Rwandan support, but appeared to have been defeated some years ago, has made a comeback. Hundreds of Congolese are fleeing to neighboring Uganda as fighting intensifies between members of the M23 rebel group and government troops in North Kivu province. Paul Kagame, Rwanda's president, has expressed his anger about what's happening in the eastern DRC, particularly related to another group, Rwandan rebels, the FDLR, the Force Democratique de Liberation de Rwanda, a group originally comprising people responsible for the genocide in Rwanda almost 30 years ago. This is Kagame again. Our focus is on DRC because of the terror groups best there. 
including FDRR and other groups which could merge with ADF. In some cases, we may negotiate, cooperate, and if it crosses the red line, we shall intervene and take on the issue. So what should we make of Uganda's operation and what Burundi's doing? Will Kagame send Rwandan troops in? What would happen if he did? How grave is the danger of another free-for-all in the Congo's war-torn east? To talk about all this, I am very fortunate to be joined by Nelika van der Waal, Crisis Group's Great Lakes Director, who leads all our work on the region, so the DRC, Burundi, Uganda and Rwanda. Nelika, welcome back on the podcast. Thanks, Richard. Good to be here. So, Nelika, can you just give us a sort of sense of what Ugandan troops are doing in the Eastern DRC to the extent that we know? Yeah, no, that's a fair question. It was actually in November last year that President Chisikedi, the Congolese president, gave permission to Uganda to deploy troops to the Eastern DRC. And this was following some bombings in in Kampala, the, the capital of Uganda. And basically gave permission to Uganda to fight the ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces, which is a Ugandan-born rebel group, which is active in Eastern DRC. And President Yoweri Museveni from Uganda held ADF responsible for those Kampala bombings that happened in mid-November. Nelika, just to clarify, the the ADF, which now calls itself a branch of ISIS, as we as we heard up top, it also claimed those attacks, right? I mean, it wasn't just that Museveni accused the ADF; the ADF also claimed them. Well, to be honest, ADF never really claims its attacks. It's a very secretive and opaque group, but the attacks were claimed by Islamic State on behalf of ADF. So you never really know whether it was ADF that was behind it, but Islamic State did claim them the same day. So the operation started out at the end of November with airstrikes and artillery attacks, and then the Ugandan army deployed ground troops on Congolese soil as well. So they deployed at first about 1,700 men that crossed into the DRC. Uh, And right now, I think there are about 4,000 Ugandan troops present in both North Kivu and Ituri, which are the main provinces of the Eastern DRC. There's limited information available about how successful the military operation actually is. At the beginning, there was quite a bit of Uh, propaganda uh, that was distributed by the spokesperson of the Ugandan army. They claimed several successes. They said they had captured ADF camps, killed ADF rebels, managed to free hostages that were taken by ADF. And when you follow, for instance, the Twitter of General Muhozi, who is the commander of the land forces of the Ugandan army, but also the son of President Museveni, he's still very positive about what's happening. But we haven't been able to get a lot of first-hand accounts. There are limited reports of actual clashes between ADF rebels and uh, the fighters of uh, the Ugandan army. It's also important to underline that, according to Uganda, it's a joint operation with the Congolese armed forces. But it seems that it's mostly Uganda that's running the show. Um, I think it's important to conclude that. The main effect of the Ugandan operation so far has been that ADF has scattered a bit. So they used to be quite active in the Beni area, but because of the artillery strikes and the attacks, they fled into northern direction, so more upwards into the Ituri province, and northwestwards, so deeper, actually deeper into the DRC. But we've heard that the leadership of ADF remains actually untouched. And so we'll come back uh, and talk about a little bit more about the ADF in, the, in a moment and sort of what, what Uganda might hope to get from its operations. But before we do that, could we just back up a bit? President Felix Chisikedi came to power 
2019, saying that one of his priorities was to bring peace to stabilise the the war-torn eastern DRC. For years, uh, saw some of the worst fighting during the civil war, and since then has you know has continually been torn apart by violence. Could you just sort of say something? about the region itself to sort of give some context to, you know, what these military operations look like? Yeah, no, indeed. Um, when Chisikidi assumed office in January 2019, one of his main priorities was stabilizing the East. And that's still the case. But as I, as I just explained as well, it's a very vast, diverse area. It's beautiful as well. You have mountains, lakes, Lake Albert, Lake Edward, Lake Tanganyika, Lake Kivu. That's why it's called the Great Lakes region. You also have rainforests. Uh, you have small villages, but also bustling cities like Goma, Bukavu, that are very nice to visit. But it's it's also an area, and you rightly pointed that out, that has been ravaged by war for about two or three decades already. It, as I mentioned, it's also a very vast area. So the DRC itself is often compared to the size of Western Europe. And I think the East probably makes up a third or a quarter of that of that area. So it's very big, difficult to access. When you travel, for instance, from Goma to Beni, uh, you often take a UN helicopter. It's advised against to, to take the road because of the presence of armed groups, but also because the road is actually quite bad. So it's very difficult terrain to travel. There are about 100 armed groups or over 100 armed groups active in the East still. Uh, stated by the Kifu security tracker that have listed them all. Um, I think it's important to underline that there's a big difference between these groups. They vary uh, enormously in size as well as military power or political objectives. We have the small ones. I think those are the majority. So these are small self-defense groups that are formed by local communities to defend against other armed groups. These are the so-called Mai Mai groups. Yeah, the Mai Mai. Um, Mai comes from the Kiswahili word for water. And those local groups, uh, they believe that they're protected in some way by the magical force of water. Of course, it doesn't go for all the Mai Mai groups, but that's the origin uh, of the name. But uh, apart from these Mai Mai groups, which form the majority of the uh, armed groups in the East, we also have the bigger ones. We just discussed ADF. I'm sure we'll talk about M23. A lot of people will have heard of FDLR, which uh, is a remnant of uh, those responsible for the genocide in 1994 in Rwanda. Uh, there are other big armed groups as well that received backing uh, from neighboring states. And I think that's also why uh, the Eastern DRC is such a difficult area and such a difficult problem for Chisikedi to tackle because the neighbors, uh, the East neighbors, in fact, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, but also South Sudan, Neighboring states have often mingled into the eastern DRC, where there's an abundance of natural resources. There's a lot of gold, oil, charcoal, but also a lot of land. As you know, Rwanda is densely populated. Uganda also has a big population. So we've often seen in the past that Uganda and Rwanda in particular have fought their proxy wars on Congolese soil. They backed several rebel groups active in the east. So it's, it's a beautiful area, but also one plagued by violence. And maybe worth noting as well that it's a long way from the Congolese capital, Kinshasa, right? But very, very close to Rwanda, Uganda and Burundi. Yeah, no, you're right. The East is, is, is more focused on its neighboring states than it is on Kinshasa. It's, it, the distance between Kinshasa and Goma, for instance, is, is huge, whereas Goma immediately borders Kiseni, uh, which is a, a Rwandan uh, town. So it's, it's logical 
for the population in the East to turn towards those neighboring states for trade, for protection, etc. Just so people understand, when we talk about the Eastern DRC, we're basically talking about two, the two Kivu's provinces, North Kivu and South Kivu, which in essence border Burundi, Rwanda and Uganda. And then you're talking about Ituri, which is north of that, which is basically bordering Uganda. Yeah, no, that's correct. So from north to south, it's Ituri, North Kivu, South Kivu. That's basically the east. And so Chisiketi came to power uh, three years ago or so, uh, pledging to sort of renew efforts to stabilize the east. And he's done that initially through some regional diplomacy, trying to bring, in particular, uh, Ugandan President Yari Museveni and Paul Kagame, Rwandan president, bring them together uh, to sort of try to help resolve their differences. But that effort didn't go very far. Do you want to say something about how Chisikedi's policy has evolved over the last few years? Yeah. So his focus, more than of his predecessor, Joseph Kabila, has been on bringing the region together. And I think that's in particular because he realizes that he needs the regional states in order to ensure stability in eastern DRC. He knows that tensions between his neighbors could play out on Congolese soil, and that's why he initially focused on improving the relationship between uh, Museveni and and Kagame. He did so by launching a so-called quadripartite framework together with his Angolan counterpart, Joao Lorenzo, and they set up a few meetings between Museveni and Kagame, and they were actually quite successful at the beginning. Uh, Kagame and Museveni had a fallout that started in 2019, uh, over mutual allegations of espionage and support to rebel groups on, on eastern, uh, eastern DRC soil. And that also led to the closure of the border between Uganda and Rwanda, the so-called Katuna border, which is an economically quite important border between the two countries. And, and Chisikiri and Lorenzo brought the two men together, even leading to the signing of a communique in which the two leaders stated that they would no longer mingle in, in each other's affairs. But this quadripartite framework or this regional track is no longer that relevant. I think it's in particular because of the COVID pandemic, the leaders were no longer able to meet in person. Lorenzo was also quite preoccupied with national politics. And Fidel Camera, who used to be Chisikedi's chief of staff and who drove the regional process on the Congolese side, he uh, got convicted for corruption. So he was basically out of the picture. We should also say that apart from these meetings, Chisikiri launched a plan that would bring in the different armies of the region under Congolese command. So he basically invited the armies of the region to come into the DRC to fight the rebel groups present. But we, based on meetings that we had, Kagame and Museveni had too much distrust between one another to accept to uh, be deployed um, under Congolese command. So this this whole plan uh, didn't materialize. So the initial plan was basically to try to get the Congolese and the Rwandan army in to fight some of the armed groups, but under the command of the Congolese army. Yes. So they had a meeting at some point in Goma, where the different armies of the region were invited. Also MONUSCO, the UN peacekeeping mission present in the DRC. And they discussed having uh, all the countries of the region in the DRC to fight under Congolese command. But th- this didn't materialize. And you then saw that Chisikedi instead, I think, pursued more of a bilateral track. So he spoke to the countries individually. He had a meeting with Kagame where they agreed upon 
some sort of military cooperation. He had a same meeting with the Burundian president, uh, Evaris Nadishimiye, where they also agreed on military cooperation. And he had long chats with uh, Museveni, leading to the intervention that started in November last year. So you had this regional diplomacy, which then sort of fell apart. He then started this bilateral diplomacy. And all the while in the East, what was happening? I mean, we've talked about the ADF, but that was going from strength to strength. Its ties to ISIS were becoming clearer. Uh, And at the same time, you had this other group, the M23, which also appears to have been making a comeback. Yeah, so to come back to ADF, as I mentioned before, ADF was a Ugandan-born rebel group that first emerged in the 1990s and initially had the objective or the wish to overthrow the Museveni government. Um, Most of its members were recruited from an Islamist sect in Uganda. Um, The Ugandan army launched an offensive uh, against ADF and they were driven into the DRC where they gained a foothold in the mountainous area uh, of the Ruanzori Mountains. And I think it's important to, to note that most members of the ADF were from the Ugandan Bakonjo ethnic group. And this ethnic group is closely related to the Nande ethnic group, which you can find on the other side of the border. So that's a a DRC uh, ethnic group. So it was very easy, actually, for the ADF to uh, get access to the local communities because they spoke the same language, they shared a history, they shared trade networks, etc. So ADF managed to get really embedded into those local communities. They also formed alliances with local politicians, but also national politicians, with the army, etc. Um, and the group managed to be in the area for quite a long time. There was a period of relative calm, I think, until 2014, when the group came back at full force and started attacking civilians. Uh, brutal killings with machetes, often at night, What you then saw is that um, the Congolese military uh, launched an offensive against ADF and they managed to capture the leader of the group. At the time, Jamil Mukulu was captured in 2015 and taken to Kampala, where he's currently on trial. And Mukulu was succeeded by uh, Musa Buluku, who's still the leader of ADF and who has apparently started the connection with ISIS. And Nelika, what should we make of the of the ISIS connection? I mean, in practice, has it changed much about the identity of the group? Yeah, there, there has been a lot of debate uh, about the connection of ADF to ISIS, and uh, there's a lot of controversy about it as well. The UN was quite cautious in its previous UN group of experts reports. They always said that they were unable to confirm any direct ISIS role in commanding ADF, nor providing it financial or tactical support. Another researcher that I spoke to indicated that ADF is in fact a very opportunistic armed group. They form alliances with everybody, so they're just as connected to to churches in the Beni area as they are to the mosques. Um, Other people are in fact more confident that the IS link is there. The United States, they uh, designated the group as a terrorist organization in, in March 2021 defining it or naming it ISIS-DRC, no longer referring to it as as ADF. The Canadians did the same in June last year. They also listed the group as a terrorist organization. Our own research has shown that uh, it's a secretive group. It forms alliances when it sees fit, and that has also allowed the group to survive for the past almost three decades. 
And based on interviews that we've had ourselves with former ADF members that demobilized, uh, we were able to talk to them in Kampala recently. They explained uh, that there was indeed a shift under the current leader, Baluku, who at some point was confronted with heavy losses. He needed funding. Uh, Mukulu received funding from uh, the Ugandan diaspora in the UK, but when he was arrested, that funding stream dried up. And uh, Baluku needed some sort of assistance, and he then reached out to Islamic State, which also at the time was looking for a new foothold because of its losses in Iraq and Syria. And we then see a change, a slight change in tactic. Uh, the group also defined itself, it swore allegiance officially to uh, ISIS in 2019, and it then said ADF no longer existed. It should be part of Islamic State Central African province. We then see an influx of foreign fighters, where the group used to be composed of 50-50 Ugandans, Congolese. We now also see Mozambicans, uh, Rwandans, Tanzanians, Kenyans, Burundians joining the group. And one of the ADF members that we spoke to told us that he saw the, the ISIS flag being brought to the camps, etc. So there was really a shift uh, that we saw. Do you have a sense of sort of how big it is? Yeah, it, that's always difficult. A lot of people talk about 1,000, 1,500 fighters, but it's always difficult to estimate whether it's just fighters or also uh, family members, since they tend to live together in, in the camps. It's not such a big group, to, to be honest, if you think about it. And Nelika, you've described some of the machete attacks and, and that the ADF is often predatory. It's fought with some local armed groups, but it also seems to have had alliances with others, has quite complicated relations. I mean, you describe some of the relations it has with locals. I mean, is that fair? It's also sort of embroiled in local politics and local disputes as well. Yeah, definitely. I think even more so than the ISIS link. I think it's still very much local dynamics that drive the com the conflict. It's also the support by local communities that keep the group going. I think the the rank and file of of ADF is not much in, not deep into uh, ideology. Uh, it's still the the local element of the conflict that drive it. And how much is it still uh, an organization that's sort of aimed at overthrowing uh, Museveni and that's Uganda focused, or is it just now sort of has it now evolved from that? In fact, Baluku's decision to to seek support from ISIS caused a, a rift within ADF. So we saw that the group then split into two different factions. The largest faction has indeed sworn allegiance to ISIS, and a smaller faction still supports the older idea of the former leader, Mukulu, to overthrow the Museveni government. But then we talk about dozens of fighters, so that's really a small faction. So that's the ADF, you know, in essence, the pretext for Uganda's military intervention. But then you've also got, over recent months, the M23, another rebel group, this one Congolese, that's been re-emerging, as we heard up top, a group that in the past has had support from both Uganda and Rwanda. Some years ago, it appeared to have been kind of largely defeated by what's known as the Force Intervention Brigade, which is part of the UN uh, mission, MONUSCO. But M23 seems to have, have regrouped. It's kind of making a comeback. Yeah. So after the defeat of the group, indeed, by the FIB, and also because, as we discussed before, because Rwanda decided to no longer back the armed group because it's, it suffered from backlash when the UN group of experts first reported on Rwanda's support to the group. So both because of the military force of the FIB and because Rwanda uh, backing out 
the group was defeated in 2013. But it never fully disappeared, I think. Um, a large contingent of the group fled to Uganda, where it stayed in camps for a long time, and a smaller part of the group uh, fled into Rwanda, where it also stayed in camps. And we see that part of the group has come back into the DRC over the past few years. Some individual members mingled into, into conflicts happening in Eastern DRC. And Sultani Magenga, its military commander, led a group of about 200 men back into the DRC already in 2017. So they've been back on Congolese soil since 2017, but we've seen that they stepped up their attacks since November last year, which coincides with the Ugandan operations in, in, uh, in Eastern DRC. There was a, a severe attack in January this year, during which M23 attacked military positions, killing dozens of FRDC officers, so the Congolese army, including a colonel. In March, there were renewed clashes between M23 and the army, but they also targeted the local population in Ruchuru, which is close to the Ugandan border. So you then saw that about that thousands of, of Congolese fled into Uganda as well. Around the same time, or during those clashes, a helicopter of MONUSCO was downed, and the DRC authorities accused M23 of taking down that helicopter. And in the attack, all the eight peacekeepers on board were killed. The DRC has accused Rwanda again of backing uh, M23. They even paraded two men that allegedly were part of the Rwandan army and were involved in M23 attacks. They paraded them in front of the press saying, this is evidence that Rwanda is involved. Rwanda, of course, denied that. Um, and Rwanda, on its part, accused Uganda of participating in those attacks. So the re-emergence of the group has led to increased tensions, allegations, rumors, etc. Because the, the majority of the M23 that have now returned have returned from Uganda or they've returned from Rwanda? It's not completely clear. So that's also part of the discussion. The Congolese authorities said that most of the rebels came from, from Rwanda, but Rwanda said that most of them came from Uganda. So it's, it's difficult to establish. And I think most of them were already part of the group that came back into the country in 2017 under the leadership of Makenga. But mostly we should understand the M23 as a group that's focused on attacking the Congolese army and uh, the Congolese state. That it's, and most M23 fighters are themselves Congolese. Yes, yeah, that's correct. So M23, in fact, started out as a mutiny in the Congolese army and, and then fought against Kabila. So some people also think that the re-emergence of M23 can be linked to ongoing negotiations between the Congolese authorities and M23 representatives, because M23 wanted um, wanted to be able to return to the DRC, and a lot of them would like to be reintegrated into the army, um, but they have been struggling to find the ear of Chisikiri. So some say that by stepping up attacks, they want to show to Chisikiri that they're still around and that he should listen to them. Do we have a sense of how big the M23 is? I think it's about 500 men. But they have been recruiting M23, and that's also a fear of the Congolese authority, because um, Makenga, who is a former colonel of the Congolese army, he has quite the recruitment possibility with unhappy Congolese army officials. So they fear that because of the current successes and current attacks of M23, that they might be able to recruit more men. And the M23 mo is mostly operating in which area? 
a ritual. It's sort of a, a right alongside the Rwandan-Ugandan border, right? Yes, yeah, right above Goma. So let's come to Uganda and Rwanda again in a moment and relations between Kabila and Museveni. But before we do that, the other actor in this that we haven't talked much about is Burundi. And Burundi has also deployed troops now uh, across the border into the DRC, seemingly on the invitation of Chisikedi, even though Chisikedi hasn't admitted that. So what are Burundian forces doing? There's a lot of secrecy concerning the presence of the Burundians in, in the Eastern DRC. Um, both governments haven't officially confirmed uh, they are there, but the Burundians at the end of December last year deployed troops to South Kivu to fight the Retabara group, which is a rebel group of Burundian origin. Uh, it's a Tutsi-led group which opposes the Hutu-dominated government in, in Bujumbura and Burundi, but it's based on Congolese soil. And Retabara attacked Bujumbura Airport in September last year, and they attacked a border post in December. And then Burundian forces apparently decided to launch an offensive against Retabara. So they've been active since since then. There have been quite a few clashes between Burundian forces and, and Retabara. Uh, Retabara has teamed up with local militias. Uh, the Burundian armed forces have done the same. But there's limited information uh, available as to what's actually going on. We've heard reports of body bags being brought back from Eastern DRC to Burundi. Um, so there are clashes and they're quite severe. Uh, but the governments are not communicating about this openly. But yes, as you mentioned, Chisikedi must have given some sort of permission to President Nadishimi of Burundi to send those troops across the border. And from what I understand, Bujumbura has, has long accused President Kagame of supporting Red Tabara. And in fact, traditionally, what uh, some of Red Tabara leaders have been based in Kigali, if that's right. Yeah, that was mostly under the presidency of President uh, Nakuru Nziza. Uh, he openly accused Kagame of supporting Red Tabara, of providing tactical, uh, logistical support to Red Tabara. But when Adishimiye came into power, the relationship between Burundi and Rwanda changed quite significantly. And even though Red Tabara remains, I think, a point of contention, and as you rightly point out, uh, Red Tabara members are still present in, in Kigali, Nadishimiye and Kagame have become closer. Um, and when you talk to analysts and people in the field, they believe that precisely because Rwanda is no longer providing backing to Red Tabara, which Kagame has always denied, uh, that's precisely because of that reason that Nadishimi now feels strong enough or confident enough to, to target the group. Because in essence, the relations between Bujumbura and Kigali have improved since Nukurunziza died. But the new president has sort of seen it in his interests to repair relations. Yeah, not just with, uh, with Rwanda, but also with other countries in the region and international actors such as the European Union, African Union. But yeah, he definitely took another direction than Nkurunziza did, yeah. So then let's come to Kagame uh, himself. So he made the speech that we heard up top. Uh, it was actually very similar to one he made right at the beginning of 2019, saying that, you know, as we heard, we're a small country, our doctrine is to go and fight the fire at its origin, in essence, do what we need to. But what is Kagame so sort of worried about if his relations with Bujumbura have improved? It seems that in some ways his relationship with Museveni uh, also 
in some ways seems to be on the mend. So what's driving this concern about the Eastern DRC again? Yeah, no, all, all fair points. And I think when we talk about Kagama, I think Kagama fears to be marginalized in the Great Lakes region or to be isolated. With the Ugandans present in Ituri and North Kivu, the Burundians deploying troops in uh, South Kivu, I think Kagama has the wish to do the same, in particular to fight FDLR, but also because of economic reasons. Because as we discussed at the beginning of this talk, the abundance of natural resources in, in Eastern DRC, but also the the vast areas of land that are available. And I think when you look at the past role of Rwanda in the Eastern DRC, it has been incredibly violent. And a lot of Congolese still have vivid memories of the behavior of the Rwandan armed forces on Congolese soil. More so than the Ugandans, for example, which have also been present in Eastern DRC in the past. Yeah, I think, yeah, Ugandans have been there as well, but they have been more pragmatic and less less brutal, I would say, than the Rwandans. So when you talk to Congolese, a lot of them just, they, they still refer to the Rwandan behavior during the Congo Wars and even after. So I, I, I think Rwanda realizes that it can't deploy troops the same way as the Ugandans or the Burundians are doing at the moment. And we already saw that in December when rumors about the potential deployment of Rwandan policemen to Goma led to big manifestations in Goma against this potential deployment. But I think um, apart from the fight against rebel groups, it's also about spheres of influence. So Uganda and Rwanda, they both have an interest in all the economic richness that the DRC has to offer. And with Uganda present in North Kivu, and I think Rwanda fears that it might lose influence to Uganda, in particular because right at the same time that Uganda launched the military operations in November, they also started a road project that would improve the road networks in eastern DRC, connecting several important cities, which would really boost trade uh, between Uganda and, and the DRC. And when you look closely, we just discussed the Ruchuri area, which is also part of the road project. That particular area where the roads will be constructed is very close to the Rwandan border. So the Rwandans fear that with the road project, the Ugandan armed forces that will protect the road project will come too close to the Rwandan border for Kagame's liking. So I think he fears that he might be pushed aside or that he might lose influence in the East. And Nelik, I mean, tell me if this is right, but the sort of official reason he gives um, is not that Uganda's forces or Uganda construction is coming, you know, up too close to the Rwandan border. You know, I want to share the resources. The official reason, of course, relates to the FDLR, the Rwandan rebel group that opposes Kagame, that were initially comprised uh, the genocidaire that, uh, you know, from the Rwandan genocide that have been hiding in the Eastern Congo since then. I mean, it's an old grievance of Kagame. It's something that he complains about regularly. I think even when the Force Intervention Brigade, the UN brigade that we talked about, you know, when it dealt this big blow to the M23 and you know, partly thanks to Kagame's withdrawal of support to the M23, you know, he did that on the understanding that the UN, the Force Intervention Brigade, would then turn to the FDLR and deal with the FDLR, which didn't eventually happen. And yet, since uh, Chisikedi came to power, there does seem to have been more sort of concerted Congolese operations against the FDLR. So how seriously should we take Kagame's concerns about the FDLR now? 
Yeah, well, it's it's obvious that Kagama deeply concerns about Rwanda's safety and the security of its population, and that has driven most of its actions uh, in the east, but also in the region. So I think if if Kagama states that FDLR is still an issue, then that should be taken seriously. But if you look at the recent FDLR activities, they're actually quite limited. Um, you rightly pointed to the operations that were conducted by the Congolese Armed Forces from September 2019, during which one of the main leaders of FDLR, Murichimura, was killed. A lot of people believe that that was with the assistance of the Rwandans, though the Rwandans said they, they congratulated the, the Congolese Armed Forces with the successful attack against Murichimura. But FDLR has been less active, they've been less involved and supposedly when Madukumura, the FDLR leader, supposedly when he was killed, the Congolese forces found a, a USB stick with him that allowed them to identify several other FDLR leaders, which you know, I assume kind of further weakened the group. So apparently Murichimura was wearing that around his neck and the Congolese armed forces found quite a bit of information about other FDLR members, after which you saw some arrests, some other killings. And then I think FDLR... Uh, was marginalized quite a bit and you now see that they are mainly involved in charcoal trade, illegal charcoal trade in the Firunga Park. Uh, There haven't been a lot of reports of cross-border attacks of FDLR on Rwandan soil. So it's less of a threat, I would say, to uh, Rwanda than it was before. Do we have a sense of the numbers of the FDLR or is that even, even harder to get a sense of? Oh, when I, when I first, when I started working on FDLR in 2014, there were about 1,000, 1,500 members as well. I would need to double check, but I think it's even less nowadays. And Kagame has also talked about the Rwandan National Congress, the RNC, another Rwandan opposition rebel group, and sort of talked about links between them and the FDLR and links to Uganda as well. I mean, is that right? Yeah, one of the reasons for the fallout between Museveni and Kagame was the fact that Kagame accused Museveni of forging some sort of alliance between FDLR and the RNC. So basically the two main enemies of Kagame. And there's evidence that there were indeed meetings between Ugandan uh, government officials and members of the RNC and the FDLR. So there have been reports that at least some members of the authorities, though the Ugandan government officially denied it, that they have been trying to forge some sort of alliance. And RNC, that's a Tutsi-led group, of main generals that used to be close to Kagame, who had a fallout with Kagame, then fled the country and started a military wing that was mostly active in Eastern DRC. But we now see that because of the activities of the Rwandan armed forces, um, RNC is less active than it was before. And we have also noticed, you rightly referred to better relations between uh, Museveni and Kagame in the past few weeks, that Uganda has sort of by means of uh, General Muhuzi admitted to the presence of RNC members on Ugandan soil and they even deported uh, an influential member recently, indicating that they are willing to address some of, of Kagame's concerns. Nelika, you've mentioned now a couple of times Museveni and Kagame sort of patching things up or some signs that they might be patching things up after a kind of rocky spell in their relationship, obviously a relationship that has had lots of ups and downs over, what, decades now. Kagame was just in Kampala, uh, in the Ugandan capital, attending what was some family event of Museveni's son that you talked about? 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's, a, it's an important development. Kagame indeed attended the 48th birthday party of General Muhozi last month in, in Kampala, which was the first official, of the first meeting in person that he had with Museveni in three years. Apparently they spoke about regional dynamics, and I, I think that that's important. But these men, and Kagame and Museveni, they go way back. And they share such a long history. And basically, I think improved relations between those two men is the only thing that can really end uh, the insecurity in Eastern DRC. I think that's a very important element of improved security in the East. Nelika, I'd like to come in a moment to sort of what GCKD, what others might be able to do to dissuade Kagame from sending in troops. But could I maybe just ask a couple of uh, broader questions first? We've talked about the size of both foreign groups and the Congolese groups that operate in the Eastern DRC. And I appreciate it's really difficult to know sort of numbers for, for sure. But with the ADF, you sort of talked about something in the region of a thousand fighters, M23, potentially even smaller, although, you know, as you say, it has the capacity to, to recruit from sort of disaffected former soldiers or soldiers. The FDLR, also not that big. I mean, you compare some of those groups to the big militant groups in the in the Middle East or even, for example, compared to al-Shabaab in, in, in Somalia. Why is it so difficult to contain or deal with or limit the threat from groups that are that size? I mean, is it just that they operate in such a sort of vast area that they can just move around? It's their local relationships? I mean, why why has it proven such a challenge? If only we knew, Richard. <laughs> no, no it, as, it, you're right. It's, it's a vast area. Uh, most of the groups have been there for, for a number of years. They know the terrain. It's definitely guerrilla warfare. But if you look at the number of uh, soldiers deployed to fight the groups, then you would say, yes, they are. They form a majority, so they should be able to defeat them. It shouldn't be that hard. But it's also because of the ties that armed groups have to both uh, local politicians. They often receive support from national politicians. And as we discussed, a lot of them have ties to the region as well. So they received military support. They sometimes get logistical support. So even though they're small, I think they're able to do real damage and to disappear into the rainforest or the Fribunga National Park to hide out. Um, and if you think about MONUSCO, for instance, the UN mission that is uh, targeting some of the groups, most of the uh, blue helmets, they're only in the area for six months. They don't speak the language. They don't know the terrain. Whereas the other armed groups, they have been there for decades. And when it comes to those, the, the sort of regional ties you talked about, so you know, we've talked about Uganda hosting members of the Rwanda National Congress, the RNC, Rwanda accusing others of supporting the FTLR, there's accusations of Rwanda, again, supporting the M23. I mean, how can we separate what are you know, accusations, sort of mudslinging? How can we separate that from sort of what is genuine backing for armed groups and kind of what that backing entails. I mean, how much is the support a, a, a kind of a reality or how much is it just sort of mutual accusations and pretexts for, for neighbours then to get involved themselves on Congolese soil? I think a bit of both. When you read the UN group of experts, they clearly provide evidence for the support that was given by the regional states. Uh, but I think it's also part of the reasons why the countries like to intervene in the East using the alleged support by the neighbors as an excuse. 
So it's difficult to find the exact evidence, but if you consult the UN reports, they actually state the evidence. It concerns logistical support. It, when you need, you need to look at finance streams, you can check gold that's being smuggled by the armed groups to Rwanda, to uh, Kampala as well. So this is all there. And so we've talked about the potential for Kagame to mend relations with Museveni, obviously a big part of improving security in the Eastern DRC, in the Kibu Zini Touring, depends on that relationship. But presumably what would also help is for Chisikedi and maybe Museveni himself, sort of as part of that, to actually define more clearly what Ugandan troops are, are doing. I mean, how long are they going to be there? Are there limits to their area of operations? Sort of what would it look like for Chisikedi to impose limits on what Uganda's doing that might reassure Kagame, that might reassure Rwanda? Yeah, I think it would be important for Chisikedi to address some of Kagame's concerns, and he could do that by being more open about the duration of the operations by the Ugandans, as you also mentioned, uh, by perhaps discussing that in private with Kagame. He doesn't have to do that out in the open, but at least he needs to be, he needs to address some of the concerns of Kagame. But apart from that, I think he also should stress that it will hurt the reputation of Rwanda, which actually has quite a good standing in the region because of its recent interventions in Mozambique, its support to UN operations in Central African Republic, that it would hurt the reputation of Rwanda if it were to deploy troops without seeking permission from, from Chisikiri. Especially when you think that uh, Kigali is hosting Chogum, so the, the meeting of the, the, common, the Commonwealth meeting in, in June. I don't think Kagame is interested in, in having a lot of criticism from international actors because of its involvement in, in Eastern DRC. And the the intervention, I mean, Museveni, clearly it's motivated partly by trying to defeat the ADF. But when the, there, was, there were also signs that preparations for the mission were underway even before those ADF attacks in Kampala, right? So, I mean, is there, is there, should, should we, how should we understand Uganda's intervention? I mean, is, is Kagame right that it's also sort of partly about Uganda's own influence in the East as much as it is about the ADF? Yes, I, I would say so. It's definitely also about the economic interests of, uh, of Uganda and Eastern DRC. We already briefly talked about the presence of gold. Both Uganda and Rwanda have gold as its main export product, whereas the two countries hardly have any noteworthy gold reserve itself. So it's sort of a common secret that most of that comes from Eastern DRC. But it's not just that, it's also the oil reserves that you can find under Lake Albert. The drilling for the oil will start, uh, I think, in 2025. So Kagam uh, Museveni will then soon be up for re-election. Uh, Uganda has a creaking economy, a lot of youth unemployment. So I think Museveni is looking forward to the dollars flowing in because of that oil uh, distribution that will then happen. And he needs to secure the investment in the oil sites at Lake Albert. So I think that's also definitely part of the reason why the Ugandans are present uh, in Eastern DRC and the road project that we talked about earlier. And maybe there's one other piece that we should talk about, which is the uh, DRC's entry into the 
East African community, the, the sort of East African regional bloc, and some of the diplomacy that Kenyan leader Uhuru Kenyatta has been doing with Chisekedi and other leaders in the region. I mean, does that diplomacy, does the East African community, uh, does that stand any hope of sort of forging a greater regional consensus, persuading Kabila not to deploy forces? Yeah. So um, the DRC joined the East African community at the end of March, officially, and there were a few meetings following uh, them joining the EAC, during which the countries of the region came together. And they happened to meet here in Nairobi. Um, Burundi, the Burundian president came, uh, the Ugandan president came, Rwanda was represented by its prime minister, and Chisikedi also attended the meeting that followed the, their membership of the East African community. And during that meeting, they decided to form or establish a so-called regional joint force. And then you're actually back to the old idea that Chisikedi had at the beginning of using the countries in the region to fight rebel groups in the east. But this time it wouldn't be under the command of, of the Congolese, but it would be under the East African community flag. And Kenya was also involved, I should have mentioned that. There's not a lot of details known about that regional joint force, and a lot of people will think it will take a lot of time for it to be formed and deployed. Um, but I think it's an, it's an interesting initiative, uh, and the role of Kenya in the recent talks that we saw here uh, in Nairobi, but not just between the regional leaders, but also between Chisikedi and the rebel groups active in the East. I think Kenyatta's involvement has been an interesting one, and definitely one to watch in, in the coming months. And so, Nalika, maybe then to sort of end, as we've talked about, I mean, it's clear that the Eastern DRC is a pocket of the world that's been torn apart by violence for you know, for decades now. And obviously the priority for Chisikedi is to sort of more clearly delimit what Uganda's doing, uh, avert a Rwandan intervention. But even, let's say, if Chisikedi can do that, I mean, what prospects realistically does he have of breaking what seems to be a kind of perpetual cycle of instability that people in the Kivus in Atori have been suffering through for, for, for years? I mean, I assume that's with a greater role for the Congolese state itself in providing basic public goods like security in doing more to look after the people in the country's east. Yeah, that's very hard, Richard, to address. During my time in the DRC and all the travels that I made in the East, I think I've always been surprised by the resilience of the Congolese population. So despite the fact that they have experienced rebel violence for decades, they're still doing their regular things. They realize that the threat of rebel group attacks is there, but they continue to be, as I mentioned, resilient, living their lives. I think as we as we discussed, I think it's very important that the region stops intervening, that it stops supporting rebel groups, that it stops taking benefit or benefiting from the natural resources in the DRC, that also the local population um, will get something out of it. The fact that they live in such a rich area should also, in the end, bring something good to them. Though, I mean, as you've made clear, it seems as though the Eastern DRC, for many reasons, is you know, deeply interwoven into the sort of economies, the expectations for the economies of Uganda and, and Rwanda. I mean, how realistic is it, Nelika, that that would change? I mean, Chisikedi himself has agreed that Ugandan and Rwandan companies can extract gold in some places, drill for oil. I mean, is the East inevitably ravaged by violence while that continues? Or are there ways to sort of reduce 
what armed groups are doing, the sort of destruction, the predation, even while that continues. Well, since we discussed that economic reasons also mostly drive the conflict, I think we could perhaps use the recent membership of the DRC into the East African community as an opportunity to discuss trade, to officialize some of the things that are actually ongoing, and also to make sure that the Congolese population benefits from the gold, uh, the oil presence in the area. So yes, perhaps Chisikedi should push for talks as well uh, within the East African Community Bloc uh, to discuss trade deals, uh, to make sure, as I just said, that there is more benefit to it for the Congolese population. Nelika, thanks so much for coming on. Okay, yes, you're welcome. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the Great Lakes. We actually have a piece coming out over the next week or so on some of the stuff we talked about today. You can find all that on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Sam Mendick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all of you, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, if you like the show, please do give us a positive rating or review. Tell others about us. Next week, we're probably going to look at the Islamic State at ISIS after the killing of its leader, Abdullah Kardash, and at Islamist militancy more broadly in Syria. So I very much hope that you'll all tune in for that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.